welcome to RV podcast yet episode number 1 the real real episode and uh, this is Vijay from Holland and we have Walter from Belgium hello Walter and we have a very uh, yes very 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 important guest with us for the first episode <laughs> welcome to the podcast Ashley hi welcome i'm joining from Austin Texas in the United States <laughs> Howdy. Oh, howdy. <laughs> I I think that's how you're supposed to say it. Howdy y'all. No. <laughs> <laughs> the American way. So uh, is it is it Midwestern or how do you call that? I'm I'm very poor with American geography by the way. Is it uh Uh I mean it's okay to not know American geography because <laughs> Americans don't know geography of literally any other place. So <laughs> that's fine. Uh I It's tricky for me. So I just moved to Austin, Texas earlier this year. I'm originally from New York City, so Ooh. I I it's I think Texas is kind of its own thing. Like if you were to superimpose Texas on Europe, it's like the size of like Germany and Poland and like a little bit of France. I don't know. Wow. Uh wow. so like the Midwest is kind of I would say to like almost the northeast of Texas and then the southwest is to the west, the southeast is to the east. Oh. Yeah, I I think you might just call it Texas. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm probably getting this wrong and making a whole bunch of Texas people very upset, but no, no, <laughs> I'll I, handle it. <laughs> I don't think I don't think you're going to make them upset. I think it makes it almost sounds like you're giving them the proper identity. So you can't divide, you can't, you know, Texas is is its own region. <laughs> yeah, I think at one point in history it tried to secede and oh. become its own country. Yeah. So I'm going to guess based on what I know about American history that I wouldn't have agreed with their reasons but I don't know the details so who knows. Yeah. I'm I'm sure somebody who is listening to it will be you know like oh somebody's wrong on the internet. So uh, oh, you know, yes. we, we get the comments anyway. Um so let's get to the uh, the meat of the podcast or uh, for the video. Oh you mean this is an a a geog- an American geography welcome to, podcast? Welcome no? to are we are we geography yet? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it can be if you really want to. I mean, no problem. Uh Given my expertise on the subject, I feel like maybe I wouldn't be the first guest on such a podcast. <laughs> Then you're the perfect guest. So, yeah, there we go. <laughs> so, um maybe uh, a quick uh, intro to the people who are listening to this. I'm I'm pretty sure you know people in the Rust community know about your work. Um so this being uh, or, or at least this podcast, we claim it to be rust podcast so mm-hmm. <laughs> it'll be nice to touch upon uh, what uh, what is your association with rust and then a bit more history about what uh, how did you end up in rust yeah sure um and admittedly like the rust community is still very very new and beginners often listen to podcasts so i wouldn't be surprised if some folks listening didn't know who i am uh but i go by ag dubs on the internet and i am a member of the rust core team and the rust webassembly working group and i'm alumni of so many different teams the infra team crates.io team community team uh i've i've dabbled in all sorts of different uh different parts of the project it's funny how a, a a large open source project is often a lot like a new startup which is you just kind of show up and there's a ton of stuff to do and you just start doing whatever is needed. Um so to a certain extent that's kind of the story of me getting involved in Rust. Um 
But like, I guess if I was to go back, uh, so I, I originally learned programming, I guess, I guess you could say it was Ruby, but I quickly turned to JavaScript and in particular Node. Mm -hmm. uh, and so mm -hmm. I worked at NPM for a while, which doesn't stand for Node Package Manager, but it's totally fine to understand it that way. Um, <laughs> and uh, oh, that's like its whole own po podcast. What does NPM stand for? Mm. Uh, but uh, yeah, I worked at NPM. They had originally hired me as a community manager. But as I just said about startups, and NPM is, a, at least when I joined, was a, I would say a pretty small startup. I think there was maybe 25 of us tops. Uh, and uh, so I very quickly went from community manager to policy writer, uh, just registry engineer to documentation. And I started doing a bunch of ops work. And uh, that's that's so a wide had, variety. Yeah, oh, it wow. sure is. It's bas basically consider it like nearly all the hats, except for maybe sales, which <laughs> I I would be horrible at because I just give all of my stuff away for free. It's terrible. <laughs> that, that's why you, you joined open source movements now. <laughs> oh my gosh! Yeah, wow. The financials of open source could also be its own topic. But yeah, anyways, um, I had started doing ops. Uh, NPM, at least at the time, and I believe probably still to this day, is a very large set of microservices, primarily written in Node. Mm -hmm. And so very, very quickly, you know, it, you can write Node very, very well. And the engineers at NPM were incredibly talented and like, I mm -hmm. would say some of the foremost experts on Node. And uh, I mean, you're still going to have like some performance issues, some incidents, memory leaks, like it's going to happen. And so I was like watching those. And meanwhile, I'd been like, my friends ha at Mozilla had been like working on this thing called Rust. And I was like, man, this looks really, really cool. Uh, and I never thought that I could really get into it. I don't have a background in like C or systems programming or anything. Uh, but I was like, yeah, this looks cool. And I love just learning new programming languages to like kind of break my brain a little and like make me think differently. Like I had learned Erlang kind of just for fun, which like completely shifts like the paradigm of how you think about what is a program and how programs mm. talk to each other. Mm. Uh, and so I picked up Rust mm. and there was um, this, the, the original Rust conf was called Rust Camp. And so oh. I went and hung out at that. Um, that was pretty cool. It was in, it was in San Francisco, I think, mm -hmm. maybe, maybe I'm forgetting. You no, know, I bet it was in Portland, and I'm just thinking it looked like San Francisco. <laughs> Anyways, uh, I went to that. It seemed pretty cool. Some folks that I knew were involved, and I was like, cool, I want to learn Rust. And part of the reason that really got me to stay was I my original career wasn't in programming. I didn't study computer science in university. I studied neur neuroscience and philosophy, and I usually say, that's because I really like to think about thinking. Oh. <laughs> um, and so university like super burned me out on like the academic lifestyle. I was like, I want to do something real. And so I've that's, always been someone that's, who enjoys. That's a nice job at neuro, <laughs> neuro, neuro people right? and then well, philosophy people. Oh, okay, no, that's not real. Rust is real. I will definitely say <laughs> in, in 2008, the neuroscience people and the philosophy people did not like talking to each other. I think those both of those industries have gotten way more deeply interdisciplinary, but it was like, I would be like, I'm studying neuroscience and philosophy. And people were like, excuse me, what? <laughs> and like, they didn't make any sense. Um, 
But anyways, I went from all of that to being a middle school science teacher in Harlem in New York City. Whoa. Um, so wow. big jump. I was like, let's, let's shake it up. Let's do something different. This wow. is a theme apparently for me. It's just like, I want to do different things and make my brain have to think really differently. Mm. Um, yeah. So I went and did that. And one of the things that's really tough about being a public school teacher, particularly in a place like New York City, is it is very hard to live in New York City on a public school teacher's uh, salary. salary. Yeah. Yeah. It gets, it just gets very, very tough and it's a really tough job. And then for like family reasons, I had to move away for a year and my certificates didn't transfer to other states. And so <sighs> I finally came back to New York uh, and I like still wanted to teach, but now my certificates were expired. It's amazing how many like tests and certificates and how much they cost and how much time they take. You oh, have to, to like to, become a teacher. To teach, you need a special certificate that expires? Oh, yeah. Whoa, that's strange. Okay. <laughs> At least in the city and in the United States, I have to, I, as far as I can tell, all these things tend to be very, very hyper local and specific. Probably, so yeah. I'm sure it's different in Europe. I'm sure it's different in yeah, I'm, I'm different from, countries. I'm from India and then my mother is a teacher and she has been teaching for, I don't know, 40 years now. And I'm, I've never heard that her teaching license will be expiring. Otherwise they need to renew it. That, that's tough. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, but anyways, uh, I like worked at this like little startup for a while uh, and then it just like, you know, spectacularly co collapsed like startups tend to do. It was one of those days they're like, grab what you want and get out of the <laughs> office. And you're like, okay. <laughs> wow. Um, wow. And so at that point, I was just like, I don't know what I would want to do. And so I was living on unemployment and was like just teaching myself programming. And it turned out that my timing was like pretty rad mm. because this was when the rise of the boot camps started. Yeah. And so I was like, I am a teacher who likes to do programming. And people were like, we are looking for programmers who want to teach. And I was like, well, I'm more a teacher who programs instead of a programmer who wants to teach. But like, this is extremely up my alley. And so I started teaching at like a couple of smaller places. And then finally, uh, a company which looks so different today than it did, you know, I guess this is like five or six years ago. Oh man, I'm old. Uh, <laughs> called the Flatiron School was just starting up. Mm -hmm. And the funny thing is I actually applied to be a student and they rejected me. <laughs> and then a year later, <laughs> I was teacher. their first I was their first teacher hire. <laughs> yes. <laughs> wow. So you made a mistake by telling them that you're a student. You know, that's not fair. <laughs> Anyways, yeah. Um, so I started teaching programming. And this is all to say to bring it all the way back to Rust mm -hmm. is I was also kind of lucky in my timing is so they had their very the very first Rust conf was this Rust camp. And then they were having uh, the very first uh, Rust fest in Europe. Yeah. And so um, I had just been like kind of playing around with Rust. Uh, and my partner and I were kind of exploring. He really wanted to write an operating system in Rust or see if it was possible. Wow. And this like mm -hmm. today, it's actually like very easy but like back then there was still like i like you still had to write some assembly and so this was a project called intermezos that we were working on and we were partly like writing an operating system not for the sake of like this is going to be like the next operating system that everyone uses it was more like let's write an operating system and like write a book alongside it to like teach people how to write operating systems hmm. um classic teacher move yeah uh <laughs> 
And uh, yeah, so I was like, this project is really fun. I really like it. Um, and so I submitted a proposal to this very first Rust Fest, which was in Berlin. And I was like, I'd love to give a talk on just like this perspective of like, you can be a beginner with no systems programming background and like you can build like a tiny operating system in Rust. And not only can you do that, but you can test drive the development of the operating system. Uh, nice. And they accepted my talk, which was super cool. I like wasn't really involved in any parts of Rust. Um, and it's funny, they slated me right after lunch. And I was like, oh, and they're like, well, we know you're a really like dynamic speaker from like your JS talks. We figured you'd wake people up. But I was like, oh, how am I going <laughs> to wake them up? And then I was like, I know. I'll live code writing assembly Whoa. right after lunch. <laughs> okay. um, and it's really funny because I was going on and on about how like we wanted to eliminate the assembly parts of this project because the error messages were so bad. Yeah. Um, and then I forgot to bump the length of an array and just in the live coding, like accidentally very well demonstrated how terrible the errors in assembly were because <laughs> one popped right up. Um, obviously, I figured it out. Mm. Uh, but yeah, and so that was cool. And then the thing that really like got me into Rust governance and the Rust community was alongside this very first Rust Fest, they hosted the very first Rust Bridge. Mm. Um, and so for folks who aren't familiar, Rust Bridge is an educational program. Uh, and it comes from this kind of like bridge family of educational programs where it's focused on folks who are underrepresented in tech in general. And the idea is you do specific outreach to those folks. It's a free event. And you have some, you know, pre-built curriculum and you help everybody get a Rust development environment set up and you walk them through some projects. And so I was like, oh, this is super cool. I knew this from like, I think there was like a Rails bridge yep. that I had done like a long time ago. So I attended and I mean, it was super fun. The curriculum had some rough edges because I mean, Rust was new and stuff. Uh but one of the things that I noticed was there was like a lot of enthusiastic community members who were running the program, but very few had teaching experience. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh man, like I would really love to get involved in this. Uh, in Node, I had started a program called Node Together and run a similar program. And I was like, I'll get involved in Rustbridge and like help get that going and teach a whole bunch of them. Yeah. And so from there, I started teaching Rust Bridges at like all different sort of Rust community conferences. I helped work on the curriculum and build that out. And through that, I got involved in the Rust community team. And the Rust community team was doing all sorts of stuff, but they were looking to like make their meetings more effective and like have some stronger leadership. And they're like, you should lead the community team, Ashley. <laughs> and so like all of this is happening in like a matter of months, just suddenly like kind of like just kind of playing around to like, here, now you're in charge of all of this, like, <laughs> go for it. And I was like, wow, yeah. all right. But I mean, to this, like, this is, this goes back to the idea that like open source projects, particularly when they're run by volunteers, are just kind of like startups. And like, yeah. you can get involved if you just show up and go, yeah, I'll do that. Sure. Yeah. And then, of course, you have to do it. Um, but uh, yeah, and so I was leading the community team, helping get a bunch of that stuff set up. And then as being leader of the community team, I was added to the core team to represent community interests. Uh, and so then I was doing that for a while. And then because I had a bunch of background in JavaScript from working at NPM, uh, there was this cool opportunity called WebAssembly yep. that was growing up in Mozilla. And uh, there was a really great opportunity to contract at Mozilla, helping to build out some of that WebAssembly tooling. They needed someone who 
really knew NPM and JavaScript tooling well. And so mm. I left NPM to join Mozilla for a year and build all of that out. And so from there, I started picking up a whole bunch of, you know, all sorts of other tasks that I've worked on. Um, but yeah, that's ki kind of the story of how I got into Rust. I feel like I continue to get into Rust in different ways, even as I like am already in it. Yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> this, uh, this, I mean, this is a fantastic, um, I would say colorful episodes of different types of things that you've been doing, right? From all the way from uh, neuroscience to philosophy to teaching to um, JavaScript and then Rust. And then, I mean, finally, I would say programming most of the time, <laughs> I think. It feels like a roller coaster. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I had been kind of programming throughout. I have like a ton of side projects yeah. and little things that I've always done. Um, but I've always found that my role has been a balance between writing code, like doing architecture work, yeah. doing incident work. Like a lot of the things I've gotten involved in in Rust since have been because I have done ops work before. Like I'm on pager duty for if crates.io or the website or docs.rs go down. I think I saw your, <laughs> your name there in the recent crates.io incident that you got paged first and then... Yeah, yeah, there's actually only in in theory there's potentially four. Yeah, uh, but there's really just two people on pager duty, mm. uh, and we we largely focus on crates.io services, and that's me and Sean Griffin. Okay, uh, but like getting that all set up. And shout out to pager duty. Thank you for your support. I like negotiated getting like a free like open source tier oh. pager duty thing for us. Nice. Because we were seeing crates IO incidents and I was like, all right, like if we want people to trust Rust and like we have a first class package management system, yeah. like hmm. that can't that can't go down. Yeah. So we should like know, even if it's the middle of the night, if it goes down. <laughs> yeah. But that's a, that's that's an incredible service, right? I mean, like uh, especially as you said, I mean, people are trying around the world constantly, and then they depend on Crates.io, and it's it's yeah, keeping it up and running. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, luckily, I I think it's like a very robust service, and we do all sorts of work on it to make it even better. Yeah, um, I think a lot of the improvements we've made around uh, rate limiting and like bot policies and stuff I think has really helped because hmm. um, some of the earlier incidents were due to like it's funny to say abuse because almost always the traffic surges that we see on something like crates.io or even like npm aren't maliciously intended yeah. like someone's like there's cool data up on crates.io so I'm gonna write yeah. a lambda or something to like go collect all that data <laughs> and they like accidentally ddos the thing yeah um <laughs> So just just setting all of that up has like super helped, and I mean, yeah. Sean has done a ton of work on the database and stuff too, and all of those backend services to really make them super robust. Mm. So it's it's a really cool service. <laughs> uh, just just to get back to uh, some some of the um, work that you do in in Rust community in general. So you said there is core team and there is working group, right? So for the people like us mm -hmm. who are pretty new to Rust, so how is it structured? Like. What what is the responsibility of core team and what are these working groups and um, so can you give us some insight into the behind the scenes stuff into this one? Absolutely, and I will do my best. And I, I, that's a great intro because the first thing I'll say is one of the jobs of the core team is to figure out how the 
the entire project is structured. Okay. So one of the, like, I'll, I'll take a step back, but I promise I'll drill into exactly what these things mean is um, one of the like things that I think makes the Rust community really stand apart um, from many more classic communities is Rust wants to first and foremost be a consensus driven organization that is really excited to have like a plurality of voices involved. Mm -hmm. And so many, many communities like, and the one I know the best is Node, um, will have kind of like a technical steering committee or like the core team is kind of like making all of the tech decisions. And I think one of the things that, that Russ thought about was like, especially with just the type of language it is, like there's a lot of very specific uh, knowledge that you need to have, like if what you want to focus on is like the compiler yep. and like to a certain extent as the Rust, the language and Rust, the community grows, like everyone on the core team is not necessarily going to have all of the information they would need to make an excellent technical decision on the compiler, mm -hmm. um, nor should they, right? Yeah. Uh, and so we started building out this idea of teams very, very quickly. And so teams existed to focus on topics within the uh, larger community. So there's obviously the community team, which I mentioned before, which focuses on like developing content and in particular like events, like making sure that we know who the meetup organizers are, providing support to those folks, um, organizing events like Rust Bridge and managing the curriculum there um, and, and that sort of thing. And like also being available to like answer questions, just like you're asking about like, how is stuff organized? And like, if I have this question, who should I go to? Yeah. So there's like a small amount of like the community team kind of acts like a router to try and help people navigate what is now an incredibly large structure that's like 200 plus people, I think at the moment. If you check out some of the Rust uh, Conf keynotes, we usually have a graph of like the explosion of the number of people who could be considered Rust leadership. Oh. Um, and that's largely due to this team structure. And so teams kind of cover areas. So there's like compiler team, lang team, libs team, tools team. Um, and the the exact distribution of these teams and their their tools or what they kind of, the portion of the Rust ecosystem that they own kind of shifts over time as needed. Mm -hmm. um, but that's generally what the team does. And like in general for the core team, we try to have a representative from each of the teams on the core team. Um, it's not exclusive, but that uh, is generally like one of the primary goals is that the teams are represented there. And then we get to this question of, okay, so we've got the core team uh, that's kind of like steering and coordinating the representation of all of these parts of the project. Mm -hmm. And now we have this idea of a working group. Yeah. What the heck is that? Right. And so what I'd say right now is we kind of had this working group thing happen largely around um, the Rust 2018 edition mm -hmm. was what, like we realized that we've got really, really great beginner documentation in general, like for the most part, there's also some relatively good advanced documentation, especially with the growth of like the Rust C compiler book. And then there's like the Nomicon and stuff. Uh, but people who like get out of our beginner documentation and aren't ready for the advanced documentation fall into this kind of like intermediate abyss yeah. where there's nothing there. <laughs> and we've known about this problem for a while and we we're like, shoot, we really got to figure this out. And at the same time, we knew that there was this question that people often ask, which is, 
yeah, we're hype about Rust. Rust seems really, really cool. Uh, but what the heck do I build with it? Yeah. It was like a question. Um, and so we're like, maybe we can kind of solve both this intermediate abyss in the documentation problem and this question of like, what do I build with Rust at the same time? And it was this idea that we wanted to pick kind of four things that Rust was really, really good at. Mm-hmm. Uh, and kind of write like intermediate books that like you can kind of finish the Rust book and then choose your own adventure based on like the types of things <laughs> you were interested in. And so we came up based and all, all of this is driven by our survey, the community survey. So shout out about the survey whenever you see it pop up. It should be probably coming up vaguely soon. But is it, um, is it an yearly survey or is it um, uh, so th- this community survey happens every year? Yes. Okay. Um, so we, we take that data and we're like, let's do stuff. And so these were like the findings that we had from the survey. We've got to solve this. And so we picked, uh, CLI tools, mm-hmm. uh, web assembly, uh, embedded, mm-hmm. uh, oh. and networking. So mm-hmm. building, basically wanting to build app web applications of some sort yeah. for the four groups we decided. And what oh. we, what we realized is like, those aren't exactly teams, right? They're not like working directly on the project or its specific properties. Like they're not making a decision in the language. Instead, they're kind of these kind of like almost like an ecosystem team where they're going to like work around the project and kind of like help own and organize that area. Um, But it's not really like specifically like on the language. And so we use this word working group at around the same time. Some of the teams, particularly some of the larger ones, realized that they needed to break up into subgroups Mm -hmm. and that sometimes those subgroups wouldn't be long lasting. They would need to be like short kind of project based subgroups. And so they also started using the word working group there. (laughs) And so we actually kind of have two concepts of the idea of working group. Um, But I would say the primary one. And when I talk about like the WebAssembly working group or, you know, like the CLI working group. Um, I think that's kind of like the, the primary usage in Rust. Uh, but what we have seen is these kind of like content specific, like use case specific organization, this working group, that idea is, is really taking off. And we've seen a bunch of people be very excited and want to start their own. And so what you saw happen at the beginning of the year, and there's been some posts on like, internals.rustling.org and users.rustling.org about like, what does it mean to be a working group and like, how can you start your own? Yeah. And so mm. there's, we, we really had to like solidify what that meant. And so we're getting a lot better about defining it. Uh, but admittedly, like the first kind of instance of using this kind of was like, we need a name for these types of structures that we have. And so we'll use that. So not not necessarily the cleanest rollout, but the the abstractions worked kind of in like adjusted time kind of way, yeah. and we're working on making that significantly ro- more robust as we as we continue to grow and see people wanting to start their own. So, are you going to publish like a trait that people need to implement? <laughs> um, admittedly, <laughs> like that's a that's a great metaphor. So. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That'll be super we cool. We should right? probably just write it as a straight exactly. trait. Yeah. It'll be super that's, cool to go amazing. to workinggroups.rustlang.org and then we see the trait with implementation. Like, okay, this is what we need to implement to, to become a working group. That'll be super cool. 
<laughs> oh my gosh, that's that's fantastic. Uh, I'm going to mention to the core team that you said that because I think that they would love that. Um, one of the other things that we did is spin up a kind of special working group, which is more of the kind of sub team kind of type uh, out of um, kind of off of the core team for folks who are particularly interested in this governance work. Yeah. Um, this governance work is so important, but I cannot stress how time-consuming it also is. Um, Like, you know that feeling when you're coding and you've spent all that time thinking about how it should work and you're like, yeah, I totally get Uh it. And then you're like, man, now I have to like type it all out. I wish I didn't have to. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Like the same thing happens with policy. Like we have lots and lots of conversations and we kind of like get to a place where like, yeah, I think this is what we want to do. And then the process of like actually writing all of that out, having it go through reviews, having it see consensus in both the teams and the community. Um, man, it takes a lot, lot of time. And with folks acting, um, you know, in a volunteer capacity, yeah. it can be really, really tricky. And so getting it done and getting it done in any sort of timely manner is just really tough. <laughs> totally. I mean, I think this is something that um, I think, Walter, you brought up in the previous episode, right? You know, like the way the organization and the community around Rust is is fairly unique compared to other languages. Yeah, it's it's. I find um, I, I find this community driven and consensus driven structure uh, very appealing because um, I haven't really seen that done in 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 any other language. I could. Again, somebody on the internet is now going to say, like, yes, there's another one. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> um, it's a, which is hey, a enough, is, but, is proper language with the community driven consensus or whatever. Somebody will say something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, but it's, uh, I mean, it's, 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 it's a huge part of the, of the, of the appeal for me. Um, because, um, yeah, I haven't, I haven't seen it done anywhere else and it kind of, it, yeah it makes it it makes it makes it unique yeah. um and i feel like it it also makes it easier for people to contribute on like the language level and and like for mostly like the language is sort of a given you know like it's handed down to you for you know on on stone tablets and you, you sort of have to work within those constraints but like rust is still sort of evolving and with this open community it feels like it's it's a much more malleable thing yeah. you know yeah like, uh, yeah and that's that's very exciting at least for me so one thing I can share, um, I definitely also think it's really exciting. And like before I was doing Rust, I was doing JavaScript. I've been involved in like TC39 and stuff like that. Um, and it's really interesting to watch Rust and TC39 kind of evolve together because I think we are learning a lot of things from each other. So hmm. for folks who are not familiar, TC39 is the governance group. It stands for Technical Committee 39. Um, based in this group called ECMA. And you may or may not know that JavaScript standard is actually called ECMAScript. Um, don't know why they didn't go to market with the word ECMA, because that's clearly very appealing. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but anyways, they have, they have this committee, and this is the committee that determines the spec for JavaScript, and then browsers implement it. Obviously, slightly different than something like Rust. And I really hope yeah. somebody comments in about, like, why doesn't Rust have a spec? And I could be like, there are people who want to do that, and, like, you should go talk to them. Um, but anyways, <laughs> uh, 
Uh, one of the things that's that's interesting is uh, TC39 is really like a pay-to-play situation. You pay money to join that, mm. and when you join, you get a vote, and that's how they do it there. Obviously, Rust is kind of almost the direct opposite. Uh, but what's interesting to think about with both of these communities is their scale. Yeah. So by the time people started caring what the JavaScript spec actually was, the scale of JavaScript was immense, right? Yeah. Um, and so Rust, Rust is certainly growing. And part of the reason the consensus community driven processes have worked was because Rust was pretty small. And so mm. one of the things I can share is, and no one get nervous. We don't want to get rid of like this thing that we think makes our community super unique. But it, <laughs> if you spend any amount of time on the RFCs repo, uh, you may notice that we, we are reaching a kind of scale issue. Human brains can only consume so many comments so quickly. <laughs> um, and so we're really interested to, to think about how we can keep this consensus that I think really helps us feel like an open community-driven project while also making sure that there's like not members of the Lang team who are on the hook for consuming like 1,000 GitHub comments. Yeah, like. Yeah. Maybe like I would say a week, but that could be like an incredibly conservative estimate because some of these RFCs as and I think you'll you would have seen these possibly around the async conversations. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, even back in the day, like question mark, there was a lot going on there, mm. uh, but they can get really overwhelming. And remember, like we're a volunteer driven organization, like a volunteer having to consume all of that is really, really tough. So I think there's some really unique opportunities to take this consensus model and find out how we can scale it. Uh, and I love that because it's a capital H problem, but I'm also terrified because I don't think it's been solved before. Yeah. So this is very untrod territory. <laughs> I think that the consensus of my personal vision is that consensus only scales up to a, a certain amount, right? And then you kind of have to slice responsibilities down because just, you know, um, just ask anybody who worked on any consensus protocols, right? Um, <laughs> just add notes to the cluster. Eventually nothing goes through anymore. Um, I love taking uh, people problems and then finding tech metaphors for them. They're fantastic. <laughs> this is actually kind of like the sort we, we do this a bit in the the Rust Conf keynote I did with Aaron Turan and Nico Matsakis mm. last year. It's a we we like to say that like Rust is a systems programming language and the Rust core team is a people systems like management group. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that makes sense. But yeah, what, what I was getting at was I think to a certain extent that that if you want to keep the consensus structure, it sort of maybe needs to reflect into the language design as well, where where um, I don't know, maybe you need to um, push things into libraries or, or or macros or at least like make sure that the that the design of the language itself sort of accommodates the process by which it's created. Um, I'm not sure if that's something that's being considered or even how that should look, but yeah, well, there there is often a saying in Rust, particularly in if you go to like think about the libs team, is like the standard library is where things go to die. Um, <laughs> I don't entirely agree with that, but it's always been a value that the Rust standard library be very very small, which is hilarious because when I give talks about JavaScript and I talk about Rust, it's like it's weird to say this, but like. Uh, <laughs> 
like JavaScript, like has an even smaller one than Rust, which is like kind of amazing. <laughs> but then if you think about, I don't know, then I go like, but compared to WebAssembly, JavaScript is a very rich type system. Uh, anyways. <laughs> um, but yeah, the idea is to keep it very small and we really want to be focused on like building stuff out in in the ecosystem. That's one of the reasons that we created these, these working groups. Um, and like the real trick for us, and I think something that we're trying to focus on, like if you take a look at, at, at JavaScript, for example, the ecosystem is very vibrant, but you also find that there's a lot of silos that form yeah. in the ecosystem. Yeah. Mm. And uh, JavaScript's like not a strictly typed language. And so the silos are, are maybe slightly less than what they potentially could be in, in something like Rust. Uh, mm. And with the language continuing to evolve, I think there's always a question of negotiating like who owns some of these very key interface layers mm. upon which uh -huh. you want those ecosystems to be built. And depending on like, and we, we see this with the kind of the networking primitives that are kind of getting built out in Rust, like changes in those can really disrupt the ecosystem. Yeah. And so if your desire is to just like distribute some of the development of the language into the ecosystem, you have to be sure that you're doing it in a thoughtful way that's not going to distribute your library, like disrupt your library authors. And so finding those interfaces, finding those touch points and like agreeing on them is both, I think, a very interesting technical problem as well as a very interesting people problem. So, so they, it, um, for example, in, in the case that you're talking about, uh, changing the API or changing the interface that um, that libraries depend on. So the process is still through um, kind of RFCs, or um, how how does how does that that work in general? Yeah, absolutely. So for anyone listening who who doesn't know, so we've talked a little bit about Rust being like a consensus-driven language. Yeah. In general, the rule is for a large enough feature. And the question of what does large enough mean is, is still kind of left as an art and not a science. Yeah. Um, but for, for a feature considered large enough and err on the side of being conservative, so even for small things, uh, folks will write what is called an RFC, yeah. uh, which stands for a request for comments. Mm -hmm. You make this as a PR to the RFC repo. And there's, there's all sorts of things in there, but you could think of it as kind of a combination like product requirements document and technical specification, um, which also should mm -hmm. include like some research on things other ecosystems have done and motivations, explorations of like what potential implementation could be, types of trade-offs and problems you would see. Uh, and so when you wanna make a change, uh, you do that and then people start commenting and we have a long period of comments mm -hmm. and ideally we try and reach consensus one of the things that we've started seeing, and we, we think that this is why, like looking at TC39, like the RFC process in Rust is kind of like maybe two stages, but really we just describe it as one, like the RFC process. There's comments, then there's consensus, then people check their boxes, yeah. and then someone goes mm. and implements it. Uh, but as we grow, we're discovering uh, it would be really, really helpful to have a more staged process so we could like have different people participate in different stages yeah. and the stages could help organize like, cause sometimes, you know, let's say these, this RFC is going on for like months, right? Yeah. At some mm. point Maybe you just realized yeah. it's there. Yeah. 
yeah, maybe you just show up and you're like, oh, I didn't know this was going on. Yeah. People have already been commenting for two months. You're not going to read the like 300 comments that are there. So you just go, hey, I thought of this. And it's like something that was talked about like 10 weeks ago or something. Yeah. And it like completely restarts the whole cycle. Um, so yeah, looking at kind of staging that. Uh, but yeah, anyways, mm -hmm. you would propose this. And so one of the things we're seeing for some of these like key interface layers, um, again, we've seen this in the networking uh, RFCs in particular, um, a lot of, because the original networking primitives weren't all there in Rust when we were released, a lot of people took that on in the community and the ecosystem. And so now with the changes that are happening in the language, we're seeing the ecosystem come in and having comments and talking about, you know, the types of disruption that would have. Uh, and it, I don't know, it can just be very, very tough. Like at the end of the day, like we have to make a call yeah. and the goal is always to reach consensus. Uh, but it's always a really interesting question when it's like, what happens if you can't? Yeah. Um, and what, what does that mean? Um, and we, we kind of try and go like, but we can and we'll like figure it out. Yeah. Um, but, you know, things are trade-offs and some, some things may work for other people and not others. And so really trying to figure out how you make those tough calls um, while trying to respect the process, it, it's tricky. So there is no veto system or something yet. Well, so there there is a veto system, which is, so as I mentioned, there's the RFC, people comment, mm -hmm. and then there's like what's called like every, like then like we have our little RFC bot and it's like, you got to check your boxes. And so the team and or teams associated with the area that the RFC touches mm -hmm. um, will be asked, every person on that team will be asked to check their box. And if you don't check your box, um, you could essentially veto it. Ah, okay. Right. So there is a veto, but there is no way to say, like, this five set of people agree, and therefore we're just going to push it forward. Yeah, yeah. That Makes doesn't sense. exist. Yeah. So it, it, we aired the process fails on the side of doing nothing, mm -hmm. as opposed to doing something. Yeah. Um, right. Right. Which is a, it would, a very, you, you can make that trade-off. Um, but I think we're starting to feel as though there's instances where that doesn't work for us. And so trying to figure out how how to tweak the system to like make that work while still maintaining our values. Yeah. Uh, again, mm. it's this idea of like how can how can we try and scale this? Mm. So so I was wondering, like you mentioned in the beginning, like you studied philosophy and neuroscience. And then like we went on to sort of, you know, liken um the actual like the people process and like the actual technical system with one another and i'm sort of wondering like do you do you feel like that experience has been useful how does that influence you when you think through these problems um does oh, it give you like yeah. a different perspective on it um i definitely think so i don't think i would give up my like philosophy and neuroscience background for anything uh i think it's really important um I also like, so the philosophy I studied, I think a lot of programmers who have studied philosophy end up in like what's called the analytical philosophy camp, mm -hmm. which tends to be very mm -hmm. focused on like logic and, and Frege. I usually call it the people who believe that objective truth exists, um, <laughs> which uh, will yeah. betray the fact that I don't believe that objective truth exists. Mm, uh -huh. um, okay, that sounds interesting. Which makes this very fun. Uh, but yes, yeah, so like a, a lot of the, the philosophy that I'm into falls in this idea of like 
kind of critical theory stuff that came out of Marx. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And so, I don't know when I when I approach problems. There's I don't believe there's anything I can say that's going to sound like 100% correct. I think mm-hmm. a lot of the way I think about problems is we are in a very specific time. Yeah. and a very specific kind of situation. And like, we need to evaluate a solution that's going to work for right now. And like these details with like an eye towards the future. Um, but I tend not to be someone who really likes to, you know, reinvent things from first principles. Mm. Uh, I usually say my approach mm. is very historical and material. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think that can be helpful. Like, like I, and it's interesting though talking with lots of programmers because I will say a lot of programmers I encounter don't don't usually take things from this perspective. There's usually like a well this is the right way and we should do it this mm. way. And I'm like that's not that doesn't exist. That's not a real thing. <laughs> so the idea of context, right? Like yeah. it, it it matter, you know, the solutions work in a particular context and yeah, no, I think I think that context matters uh, intensely, and like even in open source, like dealing with like kind of classic open source stuff, you have somebody respond to your PR in like a weird way or files some sort of like super nasty aggressive issue. I mean, I don't, I'm not happy when I see that stuff, but like I spend a mm. lot of time like interpreting a lot of these things based on context and like this is a human, like maybe their like pet died this morning. They're having a bad day. I don't know. Um, I think it can often make things feel like, I think it is easier to understand people systems when you understand that they are like actually people and like full humans interacting in the world. Um, That's a, that's a completely, I think, a very interesting perspective, especially the, the shit show that we sh- see on the internet these days. <laughs> so that's that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. To hear, I mean, trust you know, me, it involves reason. a lot of, yeah, it involves a lot of patience oh, and yeah. a lot of discipline. Yes. I, I, I like can... taking a lot of walks. I do yoga. <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> I, uh, I, I liberally use the log off button. That also really helps. <laughs> Um, <laughs> yeah, I was, I was always, uh, you know, um, thinking twice before, uh, I mean, because I contacted you on Discord, Rust Discord uh, for, for the people. I'm pretty sure the people in Rust community know that there is a Discord community. All the Rust people are there. So every time I yeah, see please that join it. Yeah, please join that one. And I see like, do not disturb or something on you. And I'm like, hmm, should I send a message now or not? <laughs> so uh, there, there is always like a hesitation. Uh, uh, but that, I, I should probably hear. change that. I really like when people message me. Um, <laughs> I started putting do not disturb on there because as I said, I, I moved to Texas earlier this year and yeah. I started a new job and I I had I'm I made a bunch this like new tool. It happens to be written in Rust. Yeah. I just kinda like poop that out in a month and then like it became this whole big thing mm. and now now I am managing people yeah. and so I've just um, my availability like this year as opposed to say like last year when I was like on call at like three in the morning. <laughs> I guess I'm still on call at three in the morning. No, no, no. Um, I, I didn't mean to say that, you know, <laughs> you should be available all the time. But oh, I, yeah. I'm saying, you know, it's it's a really nice, refreshing way to think like, first of all, there is no objective way of, you know, there is only one way of doing things without considering the context and th- those kind of things. And also, I totally, yeah. I think um, having a patience to understand the the situation better of um you know uh of, of especially internet discourse is is yeah very time consuming 
Anyway, so coming back to the, the it's, <laughs> you know, amazing discussion about the um, uh, Rust, uh, how the how Rust is operating, the Rust's operating system you know, of the people. Uh, <laughs> looking at that part, um, can can you give us a bit insight into what Rust Wasm is and and what you're doing there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I guess to start, uh, in in case you you haven't heard the good news, uh, WebAssembly is. <laughs> Neither assembly nor web. Uh, it's a, an, an instruction set. And uh, naming things is hard, right? Um, so it, you can basically understand it as a, 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 new, a new compilation target uh, that browsers can understand. All modern browsers mm. are able to understand it. There's polyfills for the older ones, but the support is very good. Um, and what's nice about WebAssembly is that it has this great secure sandboxing for free, uh, mm. and it's a it's an instruction set. So your programs will likely be smaller than, say, if you were to write them in JavaScript. And it's also able to take advantage of like hardware capabilities. And so there's a universe where something like WebAssembly would be much faster than JavaScript. I put massive asterisks on both of those claims um, because uh, WebAssembly is still incredibly new. Uh, mm. It was kind of born in 2017 out of like a consortium of all the browsers. Uh, if this if this idea smells familiar to you, um, it is because this idea is something that people have been trying to do for quite some time. In a, in a certain way, you can think of it as the web standard version of Flash. Or if you are familiar <laughs> with Pinnacle, which came out of Google, Ooh, no. the portable native client. Um, these were kind of two attempts to do this before. But the real goal here is like there are applications that kind of are prohibited from being on the web today um, mm. because of kind of like the computation strategy of the browser, right? And like the browser, it's got some JavaScript. And man, browser engines are freaking magic. And what the amount of performance they can squeeze out of JavaScript and what they're doing there is really, really magical. Uh, that being said, at the end of the day, there's just some applications that are not going to be writable in JavaScript, um, either due to performance reasons or I could think of several others. Uh, and so by adding this new target uh, to the browser, we're kind of opening up like the web as a platform to applications you could never think of before. And so mm. uh, one of the first kind of really public flashy proofs of concept for WebAssembly was uh, from Google where they compiled AutoCAD and ran it in the browser. Um, mm. That's That was pretty amazing. I don't know if folks are familiar with AutoCAD, but it's like an architectural yeah. drafting software. So like this is uh, some... It's very, very heavy-duty software. It could make like probably most computers, like if you were running it just actually natively, like pretty upset. So the idea that you could put the whole thing in the browser is pretty awesome. They also took a whole bunch of video games, put them in the browser. Game companies are super excited about this. But any sort of like really computationally heavy task uh, that you really didn't make sense to put in the browser before, now you kind of can. And that's really exciting. Um, I don't know. I should pause there. It's, I don't know how familiar you two are with WebAssembly, but that's usually my kind of general pitch. <laughs> yeah, I always kind of thought it as like a, a better version of all all the um, compiled JavaScript languages, right? Mm. Um, which also sort of bypasses the limitation of of the the the, the JavaScript runtime, because like essentially you're like lots of people have written a ton of languages which then compile to JavaScript, but you sort of always still 
contained by its runtime and so some of its assumptions. And oh. I kind of always thought of Wasm as a way of of being able to to do similar things, like run different languages with different um, conceptual models easier without being constrained by some of the things that JavaScript and its built-in runtime do. Um, yeah, so I I think that that is not wrong, but I'll explain. I'll explain why I don't lead with that vision. So there's kind of, you can think of two visions of WebAssembly. One is like, I want more speed and performance on the web. And then the other one is, I want to write in whatever language I want to on the web. And so the one mm. that you kind of just pitched is like version number two. Um, and what's interesting about version number two is like, it's true. Like if you look at the JavaScript language today, like that spec is not designed to be a compilation target. It's very, very long. And it's mm. very, very complicated. Um, and so the WebAssembly spec is significantly smaller. And so I mentioned this before, but talking about like rich standard libraries, right? Like I'd never, I, I usually would say like, I never thought I'd say this, but the standard library of JavaScript is definitely very, very rich and complex um, compared <laughs> to what WebAssembly at least currently supports. Uh, mm. WebAssembly does not currently have any concept of garbage collection and it basically only supports numbers. Um, mm. and so one of the interesting things and like the numbers thing is, I think something that like people can kind of conceptually like, oh, it's programming. You can eventually express everything in numbers. Um, and that's true. Most programmers don't want to do that. Uh, <laughs> and I'll get into the tooling that we built to get you around that. But the whole GC thing is a really interesting question because the, the, the dream of write any language, uh, and put it on the web is, is there, but for languages that have any type of considerable runtime, um, what languages that depend on like a GC, uh, with the status in, in WebAssembly right now is kind of like a, a bring your own situation. And so when we think about what WebAssembly tries to offer, which is I wanna be small and I wanna be fast, if you're carrying around the entire Go runtime with your binary, mm -hmm. uh, we start losing that being small situation and then if you think about how bringing that binary with that like garbage collection algorithm depending on how we make it work um you can also potentially see some really kind of nasty performance issues hmm. so i think the dream is there like the question of like should we have gc uh in wasm is is a big one there's some proposals out there uh all sorts of things going on um but it's still very very new that being said, Rust, uh, I used to say Rust had no runtime, and then I was corrected by my colleague, Kenton Varga. <laughs> it's, it has a very minimal runtime. Um, so I will, I will say that from now on. Uh, but uh, Rust is, is incredibly well-suited to target WebAssembly. Um, other languages kind of in the space right now are like really C and C++. Hmm. Um, and so the work that I spent a bunch of time last year doing and continue to do uh, was involved in like WebAssembly is super awesome, uh, but how do how can we make people use it right? So if you compare like its predecessor, something like Adobe Flash, to say like Google's Pinnacle, um, like I would say Adobe Flash was incredibly incredibly successful. And I would say it was really successful because its user experience was freaking awesome. Oh, yes. 
People freaking loved building. I used to, I was a teenage flash developer. I'll admit it. Uh, <laughs> and it was super fun. Like I didn't love the proprietary stuff and like there's all these security vulnerabilities and horrible things like that. But it was fun as heck to develop with. Um, and so the primitive of just like, oh, there's a compilation target WebAssembly. Um, <laughs> if, you're, if you understand your target audience to be like people who are writing flash games, um, there's like yeah. a lot of work to be done to like build out like an experience to where like accessing and using that WebAssembly compilation target like makes sense, right? <laughs> so what is the status of uh, WebAssembly right now? So is, is it ready for production or so to speak? Um, so what I would say is the tooling is getting much better. Uh, like I always, when I think about, is it ready for production? The first thing I ask is, can you build and maintain apps in it? Um, yeah. and so I'm super proud. Like, I think the rust WebAssembly tooling is the most mature WebAssembly tooling that exists. Super proud of it. It's really, really good. Mm. A lot of people have worked very hard. Obviously I'm biased because I worked on it. Um, but I'm not, <laughs> I'm nowhere close to the smartest or most prolific person who has worked on it. Uh, and those people are doing a great job. Uh, the M script in tool chain is kind of the OG tool chain. So I don't know how much JavaScript you all did, but way back in the day, there was something called asm.js. Are you all familiar with that? Yeah. Yeah. I think I saw some, uh, presentation at some point. Yeah. Yeah. So asm.js was actually the, the kind of like first proof of concept, like thinking about getting this stuff to work. And it was actually a, uh, a, a subset of JavaScript and there's some really it's asm.js is a fun thing to dig into if you want to see like weird JavaScript stuff, but basically mm -hmm. it was a way to write JavaScript that browsers knew how to optimize really, really, really well. Um, and so you wrote that and then eventually it was like, well, why do we even have people writing this in JavaScript? If we can do this this way, like let's try and make like a true compilation target instead of making people write this very weird JavaScript. Um, hmm. lots of bitwise operators doing like fake type checking. It's very interesting. Anyways, yeah. um, that turned into the Emscripten tool chain. And this was like the, the very first thing that like really made Wasm a thing. And so I, I really want to be careful because I like really respect the Emscripten folks and the project. Uh, it's like what made it all possible. Uh, but I would say that using Emscripten currently is pretty hard. And the, the primary reasons you would use Emscripten today are probably like you have a giant C application, maybe mm -hmm. it's called AutoCAD, uh, and you want that to <laughs> compile to WebAssembly. And yeah, in general, Emscripten, Emscripten, I think, started with Mozilla and probably a bunch of the browsers, but I would say it's Emscripten is kind of now squarely owned and, and run by uh, Google. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think it's it's primarily focused on much larger, much much larger uh, C projects. Um, the the very first WebAssembly target for Rust was actually Emscripten, but we changed that pretty quickly. Um, and that's because for the Rust toolchain, we actually focused on a very different use case, which is like so. Lots of people like to think that WebAssembly is heralding the death of JavaScript. And so if mm. you are listening to this podcast and you think, ah, oh, yes. <laughs> I would really love JavaScript to die in a fire. 
Um, that's really a bummer for you. JavaScript is not going away at all. Um, you may be surprised to hear that PHP is also not dead. Um, yeah. That's just like not how the web works. Um, but you know that people gonna, are going to say the exact opposite. Oh, so I they, know. They listen to the podcast and they're like, oh, no. You know? No. So that's why I always have to give this spiel. Um, WebAssembly. <laughs> and so the Mozilla folks building out the Rust WebAssembly toolchain, we focused on a very different use case, which was we want people to use WebAssembly to supercharge their JavaScript, which is let's say you have a JavaScript application, you've got a hot path in it. What you want to do is be able to just replace that hot path with some WebAssembly because, and potentially listener, you have tried to do this, completely rewriting something in another language usually doesn't work. Um, that's like not how, like massive rewrites almost always fail, right? And so taking a more iterative approach is a really good idea. Um, I tell this to people who are trying to sell Rust at their company. I'm like, don't walk into the room and be like, rewrite the whole thing in Rust. Um, one, because that project will fail. It doesn't matter how good of an engineer you are. It's not going to work. Uh, two, you'll probably make a lot of people upset. Um, so both from a technical and social perspective, that's usually not a good move. Um, so but it's, it seems like that is the thing these days, right? RIR is the is the thing. Like, oh gosh, <laughs> rewrite it in Rust. We will return to this idea of the Rust evangelism <laughs> strike force, um, the joke that went too far. Uh, but yeah. anyways, to fi finish this out, um, we focus yeah. on a different use case: supercharge your mm -hmm. JavaScript. And what we really, really focused on was interop between WebAssembly and JavaScript. Uh, yeah. So mm -hmm. I write a tool called Wasm Pack. And mm -hmm. what Wasmpack does is you have a Rust project. Um, Wasmpack will orchestrate building that out for whatever target you want. And it will also package it up so that you can publish it to NPM. And anybody who's building any sort of Node JavaScript thing um, mm -hmm. can use that package as if there was JavaScript inside it. Like, mm -hmm. And this is partially because I said like when WebAssembly succeeds, um, it's not going to be with a bang. I think that people will be using WebAssembly and they will have no idea that it is happening. Yeah, um, yeah. And it's kind of like a, a kind of a silent success. Um, but a lot of that was needing to now focus on having JavaScript talk to WebAssembly. WebAssembly only talks in numbers. JavaScript can talk in all sorts of fun things. And believe it or not, I don't believe that developers want to convert, uh, you know, strings and classes and all of that into numbers and back every time they write a project, right? Yeah. Does that sound like fun to you? <laughs> Why not? Yeah. I don't know. I don't <laughs> like writing boilerplate. <laughs> you can do anything with a bit shift, right? Oh, um, I mean, you can. The question is, should? should um, yeah, exactly. And maybe somebody else can do it. And luckily, there's a project called WasmBindGen, which was originally kicked mm. off by Alex Crichton. Uh, and all of this, by the way, the Rust Wasm Working Group is managed by Nick Fitzgerald, who is an absolutely fantastic human being. Everybody involved is really great. Um, but what WasmBindGen does is as you write your Rust, um, this tool kind of had two values. One is we really want to focus kind of like on very modular JavaScript as a target. So, you know, mm -hmm. ES6 modules mm -hmm. and stuff. And the second one was it should be really unobtrusive. So the way you modify your Rust to support WebAssembly shouldn't like totally screw up all your source code. So like in theory, you could have a Rust library that could compile to WebAssembly, but also could you know, be involved in any other sort of project. It shouldn't be obtrusive. Um, and huh. so what you do is you write out your Rust library and for the things that you want to make available to WebAssembly, 
Um, you're mm-hmm. just going to tag it with an attribute. And so for folks who are listening who may be Rust, uh, Rust newbies, um, one of the questions I always get when I'm teaching Rust is you'll, you'll see this, uh, these symbols in Rust code where it's the hashtag and then the brackets. Um, yep. That is called an attribute. <laughs> um, but it's almost not an every- annotation. Or I, yes. I was thinking it's an annotation or something. Well, a lot of people mm. will also refer to them as tags. Um, yeah. But I think like the formal taxonomy is attribute. Um, we'll okay. see how many people write in to correct me, but I have <laughs> I have it on good word that that's what it is, and I'm pretty sure it's written in the docs like that. Anyways, uh, there's a now an attribute called Blasm Bindgen, and so for the functions that you want to expose, you just write that attribute right on top of that function or maybe that const or something, um, yeah. and then you run this through Wasmpack, and Wasmpack calls Wasm Bindgen under the hood. Um, it reads all of this stuff and then it writes out not only a WebAssembly uh, bundle for you, but it also writes all of the JavaScript bindings. So you oh. can talk to that WebAssembly as if it were JavaScript. So you have a struct. Now that's like an object potentially or potentially a class. And oh. WasmbyJet has all sorts of interesting ways that you can annotate your Rust code. So you can even simulate inheritance. Um, anything that you might be able to do in JavaScript, you can now kind of simulate with WasmbyJet on top of your Rust code. So it's a really fascinating kind of translation project of like, what would Rust be? Like, how would I convert this Rust into JavaScript and vice versa? Um, yeah. And I always think that translation is such a great way to learn languages. And as somebody who is working in both of these languages, this is like a just a super fun project. So uh, you have plenty of experience with JavaScript as well, and and then Rust now. So how do you contrast them? Um, what what is your favorite language? <laughs> that's a that's a dangerous question that I refuse to answer. <laughs> um, I've I've been this is not my first language, yeah. like English. Right? Yeah. No, this is not my first rodeo. I'm not answering that. No, I'm kidding. Um, I do really like the German language, but that's like it's a weird one for sure. But I love it. Um, yeah. They are they are just very different languages, and yeah. so. It's trick. It's it's tricky. I I don't. I actually really don't have any favorites. If I had one, I would tell you. I mean, I really love Rust because at the end but, of the uh, day, I mean, of course. I mean, you, I, I cannot. You know, you you already clarified that you're not gonna give objective <laughs> truth. But given the context, which right. one would you pick? Yeah, I mean, it depends on the project, and it also depends on the team. Despite yeah. all of the efforts, like the ergonomics initiative and all of the amazing mm. things that we've been able to do with the compiler, like at the end of the day, like Rust is tough to learn. And it has this amazing, brand new, very unique concept of lifetimes. And like, yeah. you're like, I'm making a blood pact with the compiler to say, I will, <laughs> mm-hmm. I will write my code this way so that the compiler will generate like manual memory management for me. And that's amazing. But you know, if your team like isn't ready, doesn't have time, doesn't care necessarily about like the things that that would offer you, um, mm. it's, it's probably not the right tool to choose. Uh, and something like JavaScript, like at the end of the day, like the JavaScript package ecosystem is huge and it's super great. The productivity that you can get just like quickly out of the bat is, is awesome. There's a lot of people who know JavaScript. Uh, and so if you need to build a team quickly and like hire for something, like it's going to be harder to hire like a robust team of Rust 
people, if you need people to be on site in a specific location and you need to hire them quickly, like that's tough. I think we're mm-hmm. getting there and it's growing and I'm super excited to see that. Um, yeah. But also like, you know, Wasm is new. If you need to do something in the browser, JavaScript is yeah. probably the best place to do it. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Node has a ton of really cool things. The tooling there is pretty great. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I, I have, I have been sold on rust and part of the reason I like rust is one. Now I know it. Like I got over the hump, uh, before you get over the hump, it can be just really tough. And I'm glad we have a supportive community because I don't think people would stick with it. If we hadn't, didn't have people going, you can do it. We believe in you. Um, and, and, and one sec. So you, you have a lot of valuable experience in teaching as well. So uh, when you say Rust can be tough to learn, are there any particular things that you found out that uh, that can be um, specific uh, in terms of learning Rust? Oh, this can be difficult concept to grok, for example. Oh, um, yeah. So definitely lifetimes. Mm. Uh, that stuff's pretty tough. One of the things that I do like to tell people, like when I taught Rust Bridge, I kind of said, like, we're not going to talk about lifetimes. And as Rust grows, Mm -hmm. long term, it's very good to understand the concept. It's very, very powerful. Um, You can make much more performant and like small applications. But Mm -hmm. like, you don't really need to understand it to get a lot done in Rust, yeah. like you can be very, very productive in Rust and have like a very, very small concept of lifetimes. Um, mm. And usually when people ran into issues, I had this kind of saying in Rust Bridge, I want to make a t-shirt of it, but it's a, uh, put an ampersand on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just like, like the yeah. put a bird on it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, put an ampersand on it. Like you're good. Just, <laughs> it's yeah. cool. Um, and I, I'm often <laughs> one of those people who says like to new teams, new people's, people using Rust, like, if you don't know how to solve this right now, like just clone it. That's fine. Yeah. Just clone yeah. it. Get it to compile. Uh, yeah. There was this uh, this like programmer meme thing from like five years ago or something, where it's like words put on top of pictures, like simulating like kind of like motivational statements, but it was the opposite. <laughs> and my favorite yeah. <laughs> was a picture of two race cars crashing into each other, and on top of it, it says, "It doesn't work, but it's fast." Um, <laughs> I love so, it. So, so probably it's the other way around. Like it works, but it is not as fast as you can right. make it. But I mean, yeah. at the end of the day, a Rust tool with like five clones in it is still probably going to be like way faster yeah. than like some JavaScript. So, like to a certain extent, Rust gives you a lot of power. And I think as yeah. a new developer, especially even not a new developer, like new to programming or even just new to Rust, it's hard to figure out which of the optimizations that Rust lets you do, you actually have to care about. Like yeah. you get all these cool knobs that you can turn and you're like, oh, I, I should probably turn them all. And it's like, no, no, don't worry about it. Like, it's cool. Like just start and get stuff compiling. And then you can kind of like slowly expose yourself to those things and start playing around with them. And I think as a new person without like a, a ton of guidance, it can, it can be very overwhelming. I think the yeah. other thing like coming from a teaching perspective is like when I think about teaching, Teaching is just feedback loops. It's all about feedback loops and things become more effective as learning experiences when you have a tighter feedback loop. And so if you take a look at something like Rust, the first thing to note is that it can be really, really awesome because the compiler catches so much for you and it can tell you a lot about things that are going to go wrong. 
Um, you also have tools like Clippy and Rust Format. Like all of these things are going to like help quicken up that feedback loop. So you're not like throwing an app into production and like finding out mm. if it's going to break or not at runtime. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I, I I'm mostly writing Closure and you know uh, and Python, and uh, that's usually because errors are caught at the runtime. Right, and yeah. Probably JavaScript has the same kind of notion, right? Oh, it sure that. is. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> um, so. And so to a certain extent, the feedback loop there is is very, very short, and that is very cool. Yeah. But yeah. one of the interesting things about Rust is, uh, and this, this is also for companies that are considering using Rust, and this is something I try and remind folks, is Rust like fundamentally redistributes um, the, like, labor time uh, yeah. in, mm. in a programming project. So usually yeah. like you kick off the project, you're kind of slowly ramping up, people are doing it, and then you put it into production and the amount of work you have to do actually stays pretty much the same for a while until eventually it drops off, but it probably never ever reaches zero. Again, this mm. runtime error mm. stuff. Um, however, in a Rust project, uh, again, I don't think nothing's ever perfect, so it'll never reach zero. But what you'll see is instead of that kind of like slow ramp up in a Rust project, I often find it like spikes up way at the beginning. And the amount of work you have to do at the beginning of a project and as you're developing yeah. it is so much more than what you're used to. And so if you're a company, what you'll find is you probably ship slightly later than you yeah. might if you're writing in a different language, but you'll ship with something that's going to be more robust long term. So you probably yeah. don't have to do as long of a beta period or like there's a lot less like put it in runtime like QA. Um, mm. And so that's for a company. And then for someone who's learning, one of the things that can be really complicated is the amount of work you have to put in before you can like get that first thing that runs is also a little bit longer. And so just like yeah. getting that little dopamine hit of, oh, it's working. Yeah, I got it. Yeah. Um, it can take just a little bit longer. And I think that that can be tough. And so... Uh, there's a like you need a little bit more perseverance um, and patience up at the beginning, and that that can just be you know tricky for folks. And oftentimes, unfortunately, what will happen is people don't understand that that's like part of the normal process. Like yeah. even if you're an advanced programmer, like that distribution is the same. So a lot of people who are beginners will see that it's taking longer before they like get that little dopamine going. Uh, and they won't think it's the language or the new paradigm. They'll think it's like them, like maybe being stupid. And they'll quit mm -hmm. because maybe they think that they're not cut out for it. And that like makes my heart break. And so trying to figure out how to like better communicate, like it's a little bit more work upfront, but that's not your fault. That's kind of like how this language is designed. You invest upfront for like significantly more long-term stability. Um, mm. It's not just you like, and, and kind of sharing that with folks. And I think, a lot of people tend to feel very impostery right at the beginning of learning Rust um, for this reason. And it's something we're working on. <laughs> no, I, I kind of like this. The, I mean, this feels like it ties in super well with the supercharge your JavaScript um, mm -hmm. you know, thing. Because JavaScript is, to a certain extent, like completely the other way around. It will go out of its way to make sure your code runs. I mean, like you know, you can yep. type any random garbage, and it will try to do something with it. You know, um, it's trying its best. It really yeah. is. <laughs> it's like, yeah, and 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 like that's really great initially because you can you can just quickly type something and like some something else will come out. Like, and you get that iterative cycle running very quickly. 
Um, yeah, and early maybe on, you didn't. Maybe it's uh, you didn't convert it to a string, and maybe you left out a bunch of semicolons. But it's got it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I think it's 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 the other way around, right? The JavaScript compiler is trying to please you, and then when you're writing Rust, you're trying to please the compiler. Yeah. I I... <laughs> <laughs> what what I was getting at was kind of that can be a very quick way to sort of get an idea running, like you're figuring it out, and you don't yeah. really want to spend all the time up front, but then. Once, once I get things stabilize a bit, there, there's pieces where you want that robustness, where you kind of want to, I don't know, pay that price. It's maybe not the right yep. expression, but sort mm -hmm. of rewrite those with in Rust and Wasm, like supercharge those pieces because you know they will benefit from them now. Yeah, and like, it, it allows you to kind of have best of both worlds that way. I think so, and like. I think you're close with pay the price. I think the word I usually use is, is also a money metaphor, but what I would say is like, there's usually parts of your application that you are willing to invest more in. Hmm. Like it's, it's more about investing. Like, you know, there's a whole bunch of your app and like, it's probably not super process heavy, like just doing some stuff. Maybe, you know, the strictness of a type system is like really unnecessary for it. Um, hmm. And then there's parts where you're like, yeah, th like this better work. Like mm. this is very critical. It's probably rather process heavy, maybe compute heavy. Um, and like it's worth investing in that spot. Um, and like taking a language that like you understand is, is kind of like an investment of like time um, to make sure that you can get that longer payout. I think that the for me because I just started learning Rust, so obviously you now I have a, a way way minimal experience compared to you. Welcome. Uh, and <laughs> <laughs> so I think one of the things because um, the the stuff that I'm used to is uh, Clojure, Python, or um, Scala, even in Java. I come from garbage collected languages. I wrote Visual C plus plus way way long time ago. Um, so for me, the 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 upfront thinking is. And the type system doesn't have a big problem for me because I perpetually try to learn Haskell, so I'm okay with it, and I know Scala, so types are okay. That that's not a big problem for me. But the the way Rust and quote unquote enforces the <laughs> the error handling is oh. you know that, that so essentially you're you're making me think all possible paths before even I run the program. So that's a that's the thing that I need to get used to because if I if I open REPL enclosure or if I just playing with uh, Python, uh, you know, uh, IPython or whatever, then I'm, I'm not thinking about, I'm only thinking about happy path and then moving on. And then I put it into production and then shit hits the ceiling, but that's a different problem. Yeah. Well, you're, well, <laughs> so I am so glad you brought up error handling um, because yeah. one of the things, so I, I'm, as I mentioned, like I'm now a manager and I'm like bringing up a whole bunch of folks onto this yeah. Rust project and none of them knew Rust before and now they're all learning oh. Rust, um, which is super exciting. And one of my favorite things about teaching Rust is like, I bet you didn't think that strings were this messed up, huh? Exactly, yeah. Um, <laughs> and it's, again, like, we got a weird thing where there's, like, string slices, which I call and stirs, um, and <laughs> string with a capital S. Uh, but yeah. what I think is the most fun part, and admittedly, I think there's a, a fair amount of, like, language work we could do here. Like, if you want to yeah. hear without boats get grumpy, ask them about... Uh, the, the path standard library functions. Um, okay. But amazingly, if you give someone a task, like here's a path, like try and like print it out, like to the, the screen or something. I mean, there's, there's ways to do it, but like you often yeah. end up having to call a whole bunch of things. And it's because what Russ is making you do is check all of these ways that strings can fail 
because it turns yeah. out strings are just very deeply complicated as a as a concept. Um, yeah. It kind of it teaches you about how complex strings actually are because it tells you about the ways they can fail that you probably never even thought of. Because like I remember exactly. being like, "Why the heck does this return a result? Like, why would this ever?" Oh, <laughs> character <laughs> encoding. Oh man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think th this has been the biggest, um, you know, thinking time for me or uh, when when I'm writing small, pro even small programs, I'm thinking because when I do the same thing in Clojure, when I do the same thing in Python, you know, I I'm not thinking about a million ways it is going to fail. I'm only thinking about what is the one way this is going to work and then move on. Right. So, so one, that's one, the difference. One of the I other think. things I'll share, and I mean, this kind of also touches back on this idea of like designing the language for yeah. the governance structure that we have and like pushing things to the ecosystem is it mm. has been long understood that what Rust gives you out of the box regarding error handling is to be as polite as I possibly can be, insufficient. And so you do see a kind of like a uh, very robust ecosystem of error handling libraries and one yeah. of the things that's tricky though is like the error handling libraries don't always like play super well together. And so this, this can often form like silos very quickly. Uh, but there's, it, it started with error chain. Error chain used to be yeah. like the hotness to pick. And then it was yeah. failure and like, failure was really cool. I continue to use failure, but I know that there's, we're, are, I'm already seeing the tide start to turn and like some more new things are showing up. Um, so. I think it's interesting. I mean, I am very glad that Rust didn't make a choice because I don't yeah. think we had all the information to make the choice. And if we had made one, mm. we may not have made the right one. And I think waiting mm. has been helpful. I do think we are getting to a place where we have some idea of what we do want. Um, mm. But like, yeah, I don't know. It's very interesting. And like error handling is something that everyone cares about. And like we are, I think, kind of hurting a lot of beginners first experiences like if you don't have someone who goes hey uh yeah uh error handling like please just use this um don't mm. try and like implement from for every single freaking error you're gonna have a horrible day uh yeah because <laughs> that's i mean like it is a lot of cutting and pacing and like once you understand that's what you have to do it's like not that bad but man is it tedious uh, and that can be like a very unfun thing for someone who's a beginner just trying to like make something show up like but the, the interesting part is in, in Java, we do have this checked exceptions and, uh, you know, uh, runtime stuff as well. So they're they forcing us to do checked exceptions. And then eventually everybody just catches them and ignores them, like moving on. And then, <laughs> and then, so that, that that's kind of a bad practice. But in Scala, they, they remove the check, checked exceptions completely. And then if you see the other languages, there are no exceptions. And, you know, that, that that's a different kind of world. But this, this, I think, as you said, this is one of the because I was looking into different crates as well, like the failure and error chain, and and then there is one macro, and then that is going to use this one, and then oh, okay, this is this seems to be too much for me. I'd rather just type, okay, you know, uh, pattern matching, and then just deal with them rather than using all these weird macros that I don't know about. Yeah. So so I really do like failure. If you want, if you want to be like prototyping quickly, and just to share, yeah. like. Some of the things that I said might suggest that I don't think Rust is a good prototyping language. And that's something that yeah. people have said. I actually really love prototyping stuff in Rust just because, again, Rust, I think Rust has made me a bad programmer because it's allowed <laughs> me 
to offload so much cognitive load, man, yeah. like one of my favorite things is like, if I have to like move files around or like, like I just, I just move everything and I just do compiler driven development. I'm like, just tell me where I'm missing my use statements. I'm, I don't even try to like guess where they should go anymore. I'm just like, the compiler will tell me or like, oh, I don't know what type this returns. It's cool. I'll return unit and it will just tell me what type I'm returning. I'll just stick it there. It's great. Um, very lazy. Uh, and Russ lets me be lazy in ways that I like being lazy. Um, but for, for prototyping, something like failure will allow you, like it will just give you a generic error that you can just roll everything into. Um, yeah. And so particularly for prototyping, I really, really like that. So I can just have everything roll in. And then inevitably what you'll want to do is instead of rolling everything into a generic error, you might want to go and like start breaking it down. And I think failure does a pretty good job. I think there are some rough edges around there. But uh, yeah, at least if you're trying to get something done quickly, rolling everything into a generic error is kind of a nice move. Yeah. That's great. Oh, okay. So I think uh, we we covered a lot of ground, and I'm and I'm sure there is a plenty of uh, brain to pick uh, from you, Ashley. So I think um, uh, maybe this is a good time to uh, wrap up this episode for now, and then obviously we need to do another episode with you to go through all of the stuff. Well, um, can I ask you? Can I ask you two one question? Yes. Of course, yes. All right, so at least it's my understanding. Well, I mean, so I'm a teacher and I'm always really excited about people who are starting to learn Rust and yeah. what, how, how, they, how they're experiencing it. So my question for you would be, what was the project you chose to like learn Rust with? And like, what would, what is your, uh, three questions. What is your favorite yes. thing? And then what <laughs> is like the one thing that you either wish you really understood better and like that there was better docs for or like mm -hmm. the thing that you would change? Okay. Uh, Walter, do you want to yeah. take it first? So yeah. the, the the thing I, I decided to learn on was a, a tool to automate my expenses. Nice. Um, <laughs> I hate doing expenses. It's like my least favorite thing <laughs> ever. <laughs> Yeah, same here. And uh, I needed some tool, and I thought like now's a good excuse as any to try it in Rust. Um, and it um, it works really well in the sense that I feel that I'm just waiting for my CLI to refresh rather than you know uh, the report to be generated from a whole bunch of PDF files. Um, what what was the most annoying thing when doing it was um, the error handling effectively, because um, mm. I I knew that I could like you know propagate errors up using the question mark, but that didn't quite really work the way I thought or assumed it would, and I yeah like I waste I felt like I wasted well not wasted but spent a lot of time sort of grokking that part um, totally, and uh, yeah that's it. I mean I'm I'm not. Not not sure if I would recommend other people to kind of build this particular tool. Uh, I, I think like a scripting language is probably much better off for these one-off little things. But I, I it was it was still very uh, I don't know enriching. It was a very I mean practical thing I could do that would have a result. You know, get the dopamine running, and like it still taught me a whole lot about language. So yeah, happy days. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So for me, the project that I'm working on or started doing is the um, 
you know the the command line things that show the current git status of the folder that you're in oh yeah uh, like the git radar and so I, i i use git radar for i used git radar for i don't know how many years now um and interestingly git radar is built in bash and <laughs> shell scripting pretty much amazing and um at some point it it was slowing down my prompt like when i press enter it's because it's also doing like uh, getting the remote um status ah, to show yeah. there are there are changes in the remote as well so at some point it became super slow and i think in, in the last episode uh, water and i were talking how fast all the things are in rust and um uh, we we both use i think alacrity and and all the rust related stuff nice um so i i was using this and i'm like come on man i mean i'm just typing enter and then you can't get my prompt immediately so i mean prompt is not quote unquote prompt you know <laughs> <laughs> so nice. I, i was pissed by it so i started thinking okay i'm going to build i'm going to learn rust and then try to do this so i ended up building small very small program using a git 2 rs library mm. and um, actually it's now in my shell so every time when i so i'm using it like every probably every other minute i can say so uh, so that's the that's the thing that i built and it is it's not super fancy it's just kind of copy pasted code and trying to figure out things um i think one of the tricky parts for me is i think two of them were difficulties were this lifetime stuff especially understanding um when i'm using a library how the ownership is going into the functions mm-hmm. and then and then when they return something how they are returning the values and the understanding error messages uh, they they are very uh, on the point by the way they they are they are exactly pointing where the error is but because of lack of uh, experience from my side understanding from my side it's difficult to interpret what the hell it is trying to tell me yeah with so those that's the tricky part. yeah with those in particular i kind of often tell people like you just kind of have to let it wash over you and then yeah. like one day you're just going to read the error message and it won't it won't feel like anything has changed but you'll just like no understand <laughs> yeah yeah and and one of the things that i found a bit tricky for me as a beginner is that if i if i start using some library and there are so many structs in it and all that stuff i don't know what is the starting point you know what i mean i don't, uh, I don't know how it is it's really tricky to say okay how do i construct this struct or how do i make something out of this this struct so i have to read through uh, most of the things are pretty documented and especially one of the things i i think uh, i don't exactly remember the name you know burnt sushi yeah <laughs> yeah he's so great i think he, he wrote some Yeah, amazing libraries and if I see his XSV library the, there is a whole tutorial in in the, in the crates document uh documentation that I can follow step by step like okay this is how I I need to use this library but for some of the libraries there are at least 20 uh structs and I don't know where to start and what is the what is the main thing that I need to use so I think that's uh, probably lack of experience obviously on my side uh but that's the one that is difficult for me right now yeah I think so, that makes sense yeah Anyway, so on that <laughs> bombshell. <laughs> cool. No, I love hearing how people are I I wish there were more ways to get folks to just share like this is what I'm like working yeah. on and like this is what's tough. So Yeah, I think maybe <laughs> the people who are listening to the podcast maybe you know just um uh tweet at Ashley and then tell her <laughs> like hey, this is what I loved and this is something that we can all improve. Yeah, That'd just be super awesome. just treat my Twitter as the issue tracker for rust this <laughs> this is a good idea that won't have any problems i'm sure <laughs> this will be fine <laughs> okay oh. i apologize i know you're always on twitter duty now now you're on twitter duty <laughs> i'm always on twitter duty <laughs> too funny anyway. 
That's fantastic. Uh, and maybe this is a nice uh, way to wrap up the episode. Yeah. Um, thanks a lot, Ashley. And, and certainly, please come back and then uh, we'll, we'll schedule another uh, episode with you pretty soon. And uh, we'd love to chat more and more about all the, all the things that you're doing. I, I know it's an exhaustive list. This is not exhaustive. <laughs> Obviously, this episode and the time is not enough. Um, so thanks a lot for, the, for joining us. And um, yeah, thanks for having me. Us. It, it's Thank a real you. it's a real privilege to get invited to this stuff so I appreciate it and I had a bunch of fun y'all are great episode number fun yeah there we go episode number fun I'm, I'm a cheesy cheesy weirdo that sounds fine to me <laughs> sounds good uh, all that's right it. thank you and um, we'll um, probably record another episode pretty soon uh, I think we are on on Twitter are we podcast yet uh, we are publishing on Spotify and uh, Apple Podcasty thingy and also on SoundCloud. So subscribe and let us know what you think. And uh, that's it from us. Yeah. <laughs> Thank Goodbye. you very much. Bye. Bye.